Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, as we look together at the whole of the chapter to the glory of God. 1 Timothy 5. This is God's inspired and therefore inerrant word. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows... Let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudicing, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Amen. May God bless that reading of his word to our hearts and lives. Let us pray. 
Our Father and our God, we ask now that you would, by the work of your Holy Spirit, shine your word deep in our hearts and lives. We confess we need it. We do pray for that great work of illumination of the Holy Spirit, that he who inspired the word would apply it to us, and that it would make a difference in how we think and feel and live. All to your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may have heard, but two weeks ago, my wife had another 30th birthday. We gave her gifts, we sang, we celebrated. It was a special day. This morning, we turn our minds to gifts, to one of the most precious gifts that Jesus has given us. In his life and death and resurrection, he gives us many great gifts for which we should be thankful But one of his best gifts is this. It's the church. My hope is this morning that we will all see this simple fact. The church is Jesus' gift, and so we should love it well. The church, we should love it well. The Apostle Paul, in this first book of the pastoral epistles, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 He speaks to us of the church and of the fact that it is a gift and blessing of Christ to us. And the first point that he makes by implication is that we are family. Now, you know, I'm of that generation where when you hear the words, we are family, I want to break out in a little dance. But let me note for you that the Apostle Paul is by implication teaching this because what he says is, To the church, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. He speaks in terms of an analogy. We have a human family, and it has fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. That's the way it is and has been from the beginning. And by analogy, he says something about the life of the church. So what he's doing is he's comparing, he's applying one thing to another. The life of your human family to the life of your spiritual family, the church. And we do well to pinch ourselves. To remember that we're flesh and blood and the fact that you have a human family. Each one of us does and your entrance into that family was absolutely beyond your control. I can remember as a a child... Several things happening. One was my Aunt Virginia came and and she pinched the fire out of me. I must have been about eight. She came and pinched the fire out of me. She was kind of a rugged looking woman. And she pinched me and I thought she wanted to fight or something. And she said, never forget, beauty is just that deep. Blood is thicker than water in our family. I had absolutely no idea what she was talking about. (laughs) All I knew was hurt and it swelled up and I didn't want to, I want to get out of the room with that woman. Your entrance into your human family was beyond your control. I can remember hearing adults speak and they used that euphemistic language of, you know, it's easier to get in the world than to get out. And I had no idea what they were saying. But your entrance into your human family is something that's under the sovereignty of God. But you know, no matter what your family is or is like, There are connections. There are connections of consanguinity and affinity. Those are your two big words for the sermon. Go home and Google them and look them up. 
By blood and by association, you, you are in your family, your human family. It's like a little country. It's like a little culture. And if you're single, then you see you are developing your family as well. You have come from one family culture, and every decision you make is building a new culture and a new family. But God's providence rules, and your family is a gift from the sovereign Lord. The Apostle Paul's arguments here in the first two verses is that believers have another family as well. We are in the household of God. We're in the family of God. We are born again by the grace of God. And we exercise gifts of saving grace and evangelical repentance that the Lord gives to his children. We are adopted into the very family of God And that's a beautiful and wonderful truth. The church is your family too. But don't forget, don't forget what your human family is really like. Now, you know, I'm wearing a tartan tie this morning. I I have a whole set of these. We, We love tartan in our family because we have some Scottish background. And, you know, the Scots like to prance around in very colorful costumes. But every human family has its foibles. This is a fallen and broken world. No family is perfect. Think of it for a moment. Think think about Christmas. Think about Thanksgiving. Uh, Think about birthdays and big events. Every family member in your family has little annoying habits, don't they? You know, we could have testimony time and pass the Pass the microphone around and you could all tell us what the person sitting next to you or across the room from you, what little annoying habit they have. Some uh, tap their fingers or their toes or they have certain expressions that they use or topics they want to talk about or certain things they do or don't do. Annoying little habits are part of every family. But every human family member also, this side of the fall, has sinful proclivities. We don't downplay those. They're real. And every human family also is a peculiar people. You know, families have kind of unusual personalities at times. And that's fine. The same is true in your church family. It's much the same. Every member of the church family has one or two little annoying habits that might get under your skin. But you know they also, by the grace of God, have spiritual gifts and graces that are intended to encourage and support and aid and abet. Every church family has members, each of whom also have besetting sins. We won't uh, ask you to come forward and tell us what they are. But the truth of the matter is, is that we all suffer from that malady this side of the fall. And every church family is a peculiar people too. And frankly, some congregations are a little more peculiar than others. I may have told you this story, but I remember in Edinburgh, um, it was General Assembly Week, and it's it's wonderful on the Royal Mile, lots of pomp and circumstance. The the Church of Scotland General Assembly meets on one side of the street, and and the Bible-believing evangelical uh, Free Church of Scotland meets on the other, and, and the Queen's Regent arrives. You know, when the Regent arrives with all the pomp and circumstance of royalty, the Regent merely is there standing in the stead of royalty. And as is proper, I hadn't changed this yet, 
The regent doesn't get to stand on the floor of the assembly. The regent is sent to the balcony. But at one point, the assembly is kind, and they invite the, they invite the regent down on Thursday, and the regent makes his way down, and he comes and stands at the microphone and gives greetings from the queen or the king or whoever's in charge. And then they march almost with uh, blaring trumpets across the street to the Free Church of Scotland assembly. And, and there they are invited to come and they greet. And, and the Free Church is a little different. You know, there's a lot of highland in them. And so they sing Gaelic psalms. Uh, and they have Bible readings. Uh, and they're very Bible-believing and evangelical. And while we were there one year, the, the Queen's Regent said, My, this is a very strange group to the moderator and the assembly. And so the moderator of the Free Church of Scotland responded with wonderful words. He said, well, sir, you do know that the Bible says that we are to be a peculiar people. (laughs) Churches are peculiar peoples. Here in the first two verses, the Apostle Paul is warning us not to be too peculiar or not to be naive and fail to recognize some of the dangers. When Paul says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, he's not just kind of spinning a yarn in midair. He's addressing a very particular life situation to Timothy in the church in Ephesus. Paul knows these people, and he's addressing their sinful habits. There are young men who have been rebuking older men in the church as if they were below them, and rather recognizing that they should encourage older men rather than lord it over. Even more disturbingly, it says at the end, women as mothers, younger women as sisters. And then the phrase is added in all purity. And the reason why that phrase is added in the Bible under inspiration is simply the fact that the church is a society in which there are untoward things that happen towards younger sisters in the faith. Paul is warning us here. He's warning us to have a realistic assessment of the world and even of the church, this side of the fall. And so let me ask you, do you? Do you expect trouble in the church? Do you have your spiritual armor on? I don't mean are you sitting on the edge of your pew sort of hoping that all sorts of trouble will break out and you can watch it like a sport. What I mean is, is have you made an idol out of the church and do you think that she is perfect and without blemish? That will come, but it is not yet. There are enormous challenges that we face both as human families and as a church family. That's the way it is. Paul is recognizing that and giving us good things to do to counterbalance and cope. As nice as it is, this is not heaven. It's only a foretaste of heaven. Sin sin still abides. Satan prowls as a roaring lion seeking to desire. And so we must cope spiritually and with common sense. It's because of 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, for example, that this congregation has a child protection policy. And we have people that are that are background checked and trained and and care for children out of that well of concern that we do what is right rather than what is wrong. Our only hope, you see, is in Jesus and his power by the Spirit every day. So what shall we do this side of heaven? Well, Paul tells us right here. 
He tells us to encourage, encourage, encourage. Fathers need encouragement. Brothers in the church need encouragement. Mothers and sisters do too. So formal church structures and authorities must use their positions for spiritual and practical good in the life of the congregation. And as individuals sitting in the pew, we can do no better than to minister the love of Christ to one another as we give real mutual encouragement. Christ Church is known as a friendly place. Do you know we have the finest greeters and ushers? You can't come in the door without smiles and handshakes and some inquiry as to who you are and, and a welcome in an informed way uh, that you come for in Jesus' name. But you know our friendliness, it exceeds even just the narthex. It goes on into the sanctuary and, and into every aspect of our lives as, as we have fellowship together, as we care and encourage each other in the things of God. That is a part of our high calling that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The church is family. But Paul doesn't just describe church family life kind of generally and vaguely. He gets rather specific about one aspect or subset of church life. Paul bores down on one area that was an acute problem in his own day. And yes, problems are different today than before. But it shows us a principial way to approach a problem that we can learn from. Not only in that, own, that problem in our own day, but others like it. He specifically tells Timothy and the church in Ephesus about their duty towards widows in the church. Honor your widows, he tells us in the church family. You see, we have a responsibility as members of our human family to honor widows, and by extension, for example, orphans as well, in our church. You see, the fact that we are bound together as flesh and blood is no accident. It's under the providence of God. And uh, I don't care what it might feel like as an American, as you look in the mirror each morning, you are not an isolated individualist. You are connected to everyone else in the life of the church. We're bound to one another. We have real duty one to another. And that's true in your human family and also in your spiritual family. The Apostle Paul from verses 3 down to 16 has amazing things to say that even shock us a bit when he talks about it being a responsibility of children to return, to give a return to their parents and by implication their grandparents. This principle of caring one for another ripples in every dimension and aspect of church life as is appropriate. You know, if the Apostle Paul entered the sanctuary and came and spoke to us here today about our particular situation, he would speak along these same lines in principle in terms of not just widows who, who were in danger of being abandoned and starving and having no way to support themselves, but he would speak about familial responsibility of parents towards children, not only to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but to practically provide them and help them go on their way uh, into God's providence. There are many aspects of application of this principle, but Paul applies it particularly to the life of the church. We have duty within the bounds of our spiritual family as well. We are to have open hearts and open purses towards those in real and substantial need within the life of the church. Now hear me, 
Paul is not talking about someone who walks in off the street, has no connection to the congregation, and is trying to get some uh, handout given to them. Paul is addressing a problem in the church and the great need that the church has to minister to her own. It's an inwardly focused diaconal ministry that he's addressing here. He's earlier given the qualification for the office of deacon, and now he's talking about a realm of their service and care. We have a duty as a church to care for those in real needs. Paul is not, however, talking about indiscriminate distributions to just anyone who calls out. He's applying real aid to real need where there are not other practical, God-given ways of caring and meeting that need. He particularly addresses the pastoral duty that we have. Pastoral with a small p. Each one of us, as members of the church, having a responsibility to care for widows in our midst. He lays down particular requirements for that. He narrows the set. It's not just that anyone should be on this list and distribution. There are certain qualifications. Uh, Not less than 60, having been the husband or wife of one husband, good reputation, uh, shown hospitality, etc. Paul goes into some details of how to administrate this need and care decently and in order and distribute finite resources of time and treasure in the life of the church. Distinctions must be made, he is here teaching. Distinctions must be drawn, he is teaching. Not with prejudice, but also not with poor judgment. Careful judgment to really help in a situation rather than to hurt. You know, the great illustration of this in the scriptures is where? It's back in Acts chapter 6 where they were having a problem in post-Pentecost Jerusalem. God had given a great pouring out of his Holy Spirit and many that were gathered for the Feast of Pentecost were converted of all different ages and and stations in life and places from around the globe. They had come for the festival to Jerusalem and God had saved them by his Holy Spirit. And so they stayed in Jerusalem for a time of training, Christian education, preparation in the providence of God. They would eventually be dispersed to every part of the empire in God's providence. And so it was important that they be prepared well. And so young and old, including widows, who perhaps had no one to support them, they had to be fed and provided for diaconally by the church. A little dispute had arisen. Because, you see, it was the home turf of the Hebraists. The Hebraists, they they knew the needs of their widows because they knew them well. And so with the collections that were made, they made sure that they were provided for. But, you know, these these people from around the empire that spoke Greek that came in, the Greek-speaking widows, they they didn't know them as well, and and some of them were missed in the distribution, and, and that caused great tension and angst between these two language groups in the church. They were all of Jewish background generally, but some had been off in the empire and had spoken Greek for some period of time. And so we see in Acts chapter 6 a wonderful solution provided by the Holy Spirit under inspiration. They recognized the problem and then very humbly the majority voted as God directed with a certain set of qualifications of high spiritual caliber 
for seven men to be set apart to be in charge of this matter to protect the apostles and the elders in their ministry of the word and prayer. And we can tell by the names in Acts chapter 6 that all of the seven men who were set apart had Greek names. They took Greek men and put the money in their charge that they could distribute the food, that their widows would not be neglected, and thereby they showed great wisdom for caring for those in great need in the life of the church. God has been concerned about this from the beginning of the life of his church, that we do right and show care where it is properly due. Oh, it's a, it's a wonderful truth in God's word that he gives us in 1 Timothy 5. But that's not the only specialized group in the church which Paul addresses. He then switches to give a third broad teaching, which is that you must honor your pastors. Now, before I say anything about 1 Timothy 5, 17 and following, let me just tell you that I'm suffering from a little bit of cultural confinement and embarrassment. You see, I can't help it, but I grew up in a southern household, and you're just not supposed to talk about yourself. So everything I'm going to say on this topic is all about your senior pastor, Pastor Greco. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Here Paul says that it is our duty to honor our pastor with fair pay. He goes on in verse 18 to make that clear. Quoting from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The Apostle Paul is invoking Old Testament Mosaic law to apply it to a real need in the life of the congregation. Elders come in two broad sorts. There are teaching elders and there are ruling elders. Teaching elders teach and preach. Ruling elders rule and care. But you know it's one office, and so it's really more than that. The teaching elder teaches and preaches, and they also rule and care. The ruling elders, they rule and care, and as needs arise, and according to gifting, they also teach and preach as there is need. We've had that in this very pulpit. What is being singled out in 1 Timothy 5.17 are teaching elders because they rule well and they labor in preaching and teaching. And what is at stake here is whether these men have provision made for them and their families for their worldly cares and comforts to be taken care of and resolved so that they can dedicate themselves more fully to full-time gospel ministry of preaching and teaching, ruling and caring in the church. Paul here is, he's not uh, trumping up preachers like they're better than everyone else. I would simply note for you that he reaches back into the Old Testament and calls us oxes and field hands. But the principle is very clear. Old Testament Israel was given the Ten Commandments, they were given various civil instructions and ceremonial instructions. And so in those civil and ceremonial instructions, which are woven together so often in the text, these two commandments of the Mosaic law occur. 
They would have known them as soon as they heard them because they were familiar with this. It was more of an agrarian society, more universally at that time. And so as an ox is plowing the field, the ox is going to eat grain. And that's the right thing to do because the ox is working hard and so he can partake of some of the fruit of his labor. Field hands who labor in the field, they're not to be shorted or neglected. They are to be paid a fair and just wage. They are worthy of their wages. Fair pay for good and useful hard work is part of the principle, but it's more than that. The work is preaching and teaching as well as ruling and caring in the life of the church. And the congregation is being reminded here that the Mosaic law, which applied to Israel and made them a peculiar and odd people, different from the Canaanites around them, really pointed to Christ and his church. And so these commandments of agrarian society were there and pointed ultimately to the church caring for the pastoral ministry so that they might do their ministry in the midst of the church. It's all about spiritual blessing and benefits and ministry of the word in the life of the congregation. But that's not all that the Apostle Paul says. He goes on and then speaks in terms of fair dealing with ministers. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudicing, doing nothing from partiality. Here Paul gives a clarion call for fair dealing with the ministry. Now that fair dealing that he's talking about is not just about fair pay, it's more about the inevitable difficulties that arise of kingdom life in a fallen world. You see, the world is broken. And that means we live in a place where things break. That includes relationships and understandings. The church is, yes, a spiritual hospital, but it's also a battlefield. And ministers are those on the front line of that battle. In a fallen and broken world like ours, it is absolutely inevitable that there will be overblown accusations. Paul here is implying that the church should not just shoot its wounded like the world does, but rather we should engage together in ministry, recognizing that pastoral ministry must be done with care and concern, with everyone recognizing the job hazard and the trouble that will be thrown at them in their way. And we all, under the command of God and And the yoke of Christ seek to deal fairly in those situations. He tells us here that charges must be rejected without biblical evidence. The biblical standard from the Mosaic law was two or three witnesses. And so there's another principle being carried over rightly into the life of the church. We today in this congregation, we have standards. We have the biblical standards. They haven't been abrogated. And we have a book of church order that reflects the morality of those standards. The administration of justice is proper and important for all, but especially so for those on the front line. Let me say that at different times in my pastoral ministry, I have seen in presbytery and in trying to aid men who find themselves in difficulty and trouble, I have seen various kinds of difficulties arise. I have seen situations before where 
overblown accusations rooted in gossip and slander of the worst sort are launched against a pastor for for nothing but selfish reasons. I've seen situations where uh, some accusations were rooted to be blunt in mental illness and a lack of proper comprehension and uh, uh, in uh, anxiety that rose up from that. And I've seen situations where clergy were as guilty as sin and didn't deserve anybody's mercy beyond being uh, warned very, very strongly in the presence of all. Oh, God has told us to deal fairly and to be careful because we must show honor also to the office. You see, we honor with fair dealing for the sake of Christ. And we honor with fair dealing with the office because it gives glory to God. Verse 22 says, Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, or take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Here Paul is telling us that we must be careful not to ordain a man too quickly. We should love the office more than we do the man. And he says that once you're in the office, you need to be careful. Why is it that the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, you know, you've got this stomach problem. Go ahead and drink a little wine. Well, it's because he's being cautious. Timothy has been cautious over the consumption of alcohol for some reason. And pastoral experience points in the direction of very oftentimes drink is a very dangerous thing for the ministry. Dangerous not because it tastes good, but dangerous because it can make you feel good in the context of pressure and discouragement and depression. It's not surprising that the Apostle Paul here, a very wise man under inspiration of the Spirit, speaks to Timothy in these kinds of terms. He also says that we have to take care with not only what we know, but what we don't know. There are some sins and there are some good works that are publicly visible. And there are others that are not and only found out in the end. And so the Apostle Paul here is telling us to honor, to take care, to play fair with the office itself, not only with the man. The church is your spiritual family. And the Apostle Paul here, under inspiration, tells you to love it and care for it, to seek its good and growth and blessing. And he singles out those particularly in vulnerable need in the church and says we must not neglect them. And he says that we must be careful with the ministry to be fair to it as well. God's call is for us to love the bride of Christ to the glory of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for every blessing under heaven, every gift, and we particularly thank you for the gift of the church. Help us to love her and care for her. Help us to serve her. And may, O oh God, her labors be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.